you, you know, I spend a lot of my time, as I, my, my little brain is running, I, I spend a lot of time trying to <clears throat> quantify uh, and, and, and figure out what it is about the Christian movement that we don't get. To, and, and so that maybe we can come up with some answers to have our eyes open a little bit more. And, and, and God has called us to a life of faith, hasn't he? And, and we're all about faith when we're singing nice songs here with a full orchestra backing us up or in the comfort of church. But when life comes at us and, and it wants to take us out, that's when we default to our feet of clay and our humanness. And we let our fears start to get the best of us. And we let our past start to define us and our regrets start to have the high ground. And the next thing you know, we're behaving and thinking and acting like people who uh, never got to know God. And so I'm thinking, why do we do that? And, and I, I struggle with that too. I think it, it, it's a malady of anybody that calls himself a person of faith. And so I want to spend some time with you today looking at that whole dilemma and seeing if we can make some sense out of it because I think it goes back to some of the presuppositions that we bring to life. Now, a presupposition is, is, is a filter that you, that, that you run everything through. And we all have presuppositions that we, that we start with. And, 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 and they determine where we end up. So, so with that in mind, let me kind of set the stage for what I want to talk about by going back to October 20th, 1968. It was the closing ceremony. Well, actually, the closing ceremonies of the, uh, winter, uh, of, of the Summer Olympics were about to begin. This is in Mexico City. And they had them late that year because Mexico City's altitude and heat is so severe, there's no way they could have competed in the actual summer months. And, and they, were, they were just finishing up some of the final events when the man on the PA system came on and said, uh, uh, we're going to have to kind of alter our plans here and, 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 and kind of clear everything out because we have, a, we have, an, a, we have an, a marathoner making his way to the stadium and, and we have to clear the way for him to finish his race. And people thought, the marathoner? They're already in. We've already given out the, the medals for the marathoners. They had left, they had been done hours before. But, but sure enough, from, from some, some of the people's vantage point, they could see the blue lights of police motorcycles surrounding somebody slowly making their way to the stadium. And, and so they, everybody kind of sat waiting, and, and then all of a sudden into the Olympic Stadium, into the lights of the stadium, came John Stephen Akori from Tanzania. And he was clearly under great distress. He had blood on his leg and blood on his head, and he was just hobbling himself around that, that last lap. Well, what had happened? John Stephen Aquari is a world-class runner, and actually uh, they, they thought that he was going to win this thing. And early in the, in the marathon, you know, the, the, that tight configuration when people are running so close together and legs are flying, he tripped, and he fell, and he, and he whacked his head very hard, and he blew out his knee, and he got trampled by some of the men. And, 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 and so, and they, but they proceeded on. Well, he was badly injured. He wasn't just hurt, he was injured. But he got up and he could not, uh, no one could give him any aid or that would disqualify him. He, and he just kind of started working his way and he, and he hobbled for the rest of the race. Now, let's remember what we're talking about. This is a marathon. That's 26 miles, 385 yards, 26 miles. 
I don't like to drive 26 miles, let alone run it. I've ran four, and I decided I have nothing more to prove to myself. One of the dumbest decisions I ever made in my life. <clears throat> but he was injured. He proceeded. Well, what was interesting is the, res the response of the people. They started applauding, and then they just started pounding their, and pounding their feet and just this thundering applause as he hobbled himself all the way around that last lap because that's how you come in and to the applause of the people, then you finish right near where you came in. He came all the way around, and he fell across the finish line. Well, right away, the medical people grabbed him and whisked him off to the hospital. And the next day, he was allowed a, uh, he, he permitted a, a uh, press conference, and they only wanted to ask him one question. It's the question I would want to ask him if I were there, and that is, why? Why, after falling and injuring yourself so badly, when you had no chance of a world-class finish, why did you continue under that kind of duress? And here's what he said. He said, my country didn't send me 7,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish one. And you see, we are called to run a race. That, that imagery is actually used in the Bible. And we're also called to finish the race before us. And we're called to finish well, regardless of what we encounter along the way. And yet the fact is that life gets the best of us. And the next thing you know, we're forgetting where we came from and what, we're supposedly, uh, what we supposedly believe in. Now, we fall into categories. And, and let, let's be, for, the, for the sake of our discussion today, let's, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the fact that we are all hardwired with a certain personality bent. And that's given to us by God. And there are some people that are just by nature more cautious, more suspicious. Uh, they ask more questions. They're more uh, careful. These are, these are wonderful people, and we hire them to look over our books at, at, at our offices and to look over our health. It's, it's a, there's nothing that's a great personality type. Then there's other people that are born kind of visionaries, and they're just kind of uh, adventures waiting to take place. And they're wonderful people, and we appreciate them. I am not talking about either one of those unique bents that are within us. I'm talking about when we are facing a dilemma in our life, a challenge in our life, whatever it may be, and we know clearly from God's Word that He has told us to trust Him in this and to proceed forward in it and to follow His instructions that we, that we back down. And you can back down whether you are one of those people that have been gifted with a, uh, with a careful, methodical personality or the vision caster type. Uh, personality. So I'm not talking about that inner bent. I'm talking about more the, the, this kind of category we fall into, and you'll see these categories. Man, people are categorized all the time, and nobody categorizes people more than ministers do. Uh, I, I mean, there's the haves and the have-nots. There's the problem makers. There's the problem solvers. We put them in the, that category. There's morning people. There's night people. What's interesting is God, in His sovereign wit, I, get, I think he thinks it's just funny to have morning people and night people fall in love with each other and get married. <laughs> I married a morning person. I'm a night owl. Can't stand to go to bed at night. Darcy will say 9.45 or something. I think I'm going to go back and go to bed. Why? <laughs> well, because morning comes early. What do you mean morning comes early? Morning comes whenever you set the clock for it to come. 
Look, there's still junk on television. There's still traffic outside. Why would you go to bed now? Morning comes early. And sure enough, morning comes early. And she's up at 5.30, and she's putting on the, the workout gear, and she's, and she's festive. Cause she wants to, and she wants to greet the morning with song. Who will buy this wonderful? And you think, woman, it's still dark out. What's the deal? See, God has two different types of people. He puts them together. I think Solomon was a night owl. King Solomon was. Because it says in Proverbs 27, 14, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it'll be reckoned a curse to him. Think about that. <laughs> but there's another category of people out there, and, and, it's, it, and it's a category of people that, that I want to limit to the people that call themselves people of faith. And they fall into two camps consistently. One is heavily populated. The other, well, unfortunately, the people in those categories usually stand by themselves a lot. Too, too bad. And that are, those categories are scarcity thinkers and abundant thinkers. Scarcity thinkers and abundant thinkers. And it's very easy to find yourself in that scarcity mindset, in that scarcity camp. I've stood in it too many, uh, too many times in my own life. And to set the stage for this, I want to look at John chapter 6, a very familiar uh, story, one of the Sunday school stories. If you grew up in Sunday school or grew up in church, you, you heard this story. Regardless, it's, one, it, it's just a great, great story in John 6. And um, I want to start at verse 1. And, and, and let's look at Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000. And I'll, I'm going to read a little bit and then pause and kind of give you some context on that. Is that okay? John chapter 6. Verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming, coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And let's hit the pause button for a second and make sure we understand what's going on here. Jesus uh, posed a question to Philip. Uh, we need to feed these people. How are we going to feed these people? And it says he already had in mind what he was going to do, but he did this to test him. Now, he was not trying to make Philip look foolish. Not, not at all. Jesus doesn't operate that way. There, there, there's a bigger there, there's a backstory going on here. You, you, there were two dilemmas that Jesus saw in front of him that he was trying to address. The first dilemma was the fact you have 5,000 people out in the middle of nowhere. They're hungry and they need fed. The obvious one. But there's another one, and that is that he knew that in a very brief period of time, he's going to be leaving center stage as far as these disciples' lives are, are concerned. And he's going to be dying on a cross for them, resurrecting and then heading on to heaven. But he's leaving behind some very clear marching orders for them. And that is he wants them to establish the church. And you read the last few verses of Matthew 28 and you hear him give these very specific commands to go and establish the church. 
Now, when the church started, how many people were members of the church uh, that, that, that followed Jesus Christ in his heart and soul? Well, you could count them on your fingers and toes. How much money did they have in the bank ready to launch this, this endeavor? Well, they had none. How much real estate and property and buildings did they, did they, did they have at that time to expedite the, 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 the marching order? None. And, and so they were starting with nothing or very little, and he was giving them a job to go do something extraordinary. If you look today, how many people say that they put their faith in Jesus Christ today in the world? Probably well over a billion. I don't know the exact numbers, but far, uh, more than a billion people. How much land does the, the, does the church oversee? You know, hundreds of thousands of acres and, 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 and trillions of dollars in assets. So, so from starting out basically with nothing or very little, look what it is today. But if you were on the original group of people that got those orders, you're thinking, how in the world can we do this? And so he wanted to teach them a lesson while feeding the 5,000 that when I ask you to do something and you don't see any way how you can humanly do it, trust me, you and me are a majority every time we can pull this off. And so he posed this question to Philip to feed the people. Now look at Philip's response. He answered, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In other words, if we started fishing now, Lord, or, or whatever our various forms of income are, and we co collected our money for eight months, we would barely be able to put just one bite in each person's mouth. Another brother, uh, another of the disciples, it was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Now, Andrew is apparently a fairly um, industrious disciple because he knew that there was a boy there with a lunch. He says, here's a boy here with, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? So, so Andrew had located this boy who had a lunch. Now, he, he, he was very familiar with the contents of this lunch. He knew how, what he had. He knew how many of each in the portions. Now, they didn't have cellophane bags in. You couldn't look in and see the kid's lunch. And here's this, this boy whose mother had the forethought to send him off to see Jesus with a little happy meal little fish and chips type lunch. And Andrew had pulled him aside, maybe smelled the light. I don't know what. And why? I don't know. I mean, maybe he thought maybe the kid has more than he can handle. He can share with me because I'm getting kind of hungry. Or I'm bigger than he is. I can take. The, I don't know what was going on there, but he drew this to Jesus' attention. Jesus took that lunch. And that boy offered that lunch to Jesus. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. That looks like a throwaway line. Why in the world they mention it? And I think one of the things is Jesus wants you to be comfortable when you're learning about him. So thus, I hope you're very comfortable. And he says, he says the men sat down about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated. Look at this. As much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Now, now you see what's going on there? In other words, see the generosity of God. Some of you uh, have a big appetite, take more, or you have a long trip home, take some, put some in, your, in your, your sack and take it with you. Take as much as you want. But then you also see the, the, the good stewardship of God, and that gather up the pieces, let nothing be wasted. 
And so there's that balance between being generous and also being a wise steward. You see the balance there? It's always balanced with Jesus. You don't have to default to one side to ridiculous extremes. There's always balance there. So they gathered up. They, they, so they gathered up the pieces left over, and, 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 and they filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, 12 baskets, how many disciples were there, remember? 12. And so I think, among other things, he's saying, look, when I call you to do something, and there's no human way you can figure out how to do this, but I've clearly told you to do this, I want you to follow my instructions, I want you to do what I tell you to do, what I, what I, what I command you to do, and listen, I know you have to eat too. You see, he, he also provided for the disciples and their family. There was far more there than even a disciple could eat. So he says, I know you have family and people that you have to feed. I, I'm taking care of them too. And it all started with a lunch. As we finish out this little narrative here, Verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, let, let me kind of give you a, a little closing part of this, this whole thing. What happens next? If you if you're look in your Bible, you'll see that there's a, there, there's a... Basically, Jesus gives them a pop quiz. Jesus is a teacher much like a lot of you are, where he, he uses the lecture lab uh, 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 pedagogy, if you want to call it, pedagogical style that a lot of teachers do, where he, he basically created a dilemma, and, he, and then he, he showed them how it works. He taught the principle to them. You know, when I tell you to do something, let's go do it. Trust me. Uh, you know, don't, don't calculate it through human eyes, because I'm, I'm, I'm above all that. I am God. There is no limit to what I can do, even with you. Now, just trust me. So he showed them that, and then he says, okay, uh, now I want you to go across the lake, and I'm just going to fill in the blanks here. You'll have to go home and read this yourself. I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's all right there in the Word, and, 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 and this is also told in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark. The same story is repeated in there. So what he's doing now is he's saying, let's see if they got the principle. Let's just see if they got the principle. He says, I want you to guys to head on across the lake. I'll send a crowd on their way. You head across the lake, and then I'll meet you on the other side. I'll meet you on the other side. He's very clear on that. I'll meet you on the other side. So they take off, and he sends a crowd on his way. And then he's praying for them because they're about to have a major pop quiz because he brings this terrific storm down on the lake. And what should have just taken them a very brief period of time to cross that lake, rowing those boats. I mean, the, 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 there, there's, there's, there's 12 men on the oars. I mean, phew, they could fly across the river. They're out there in the middle of the night, and they have these contrary waves, and they're fighting for their lives, and they're frightened to death. And they're, and they're, 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 they're wondering what this all means. They're wondering if this is it, if this is the end for them. Now, I'm speculating on that part, by the way. But they were very frightened. Now, Jesus has to meet them on the other side. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Because it's a long walk up over the top going by land. So he just cuts across the lake. And he's going by the boat. And, and hi, hi, Andrew. Hi, Phil. Uh, and, 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 of course, they just stop. And, and they're, they're, they're just overwhelmed with fright like any of us would be. And they think they're seeing a ghost or something. They're just scared to death. And then ultimately you'll read 
that they realized it was Jesus, and they invited him in the boat, and as soon as he got in the boat, boom, they were right at the other side. They, the boat just hits right up in the beach, right where he said he'd meet them. Now, for those times out there in the middle of the lake, when they were just wondering, is this it for us? If they entertained even the slightest thought that, boy, we could die out here, then they would get an F on their quiz. It would be impossible for them to, to, to die out there. They, couldn't die, they wouldn't drown even if the boat sunk because Jesus very clearly said, I'll meet you on the other side. There's no way he could meet them on the side if they're dead. And so he had every plan to get them there safely. Now, with all that in mind, see, I, I want us to know that we are called by God to specific things when it comes to our, our, our walk of faith. And, and when we look at them through our human eyes, it, it's, just, it's just standard to be overwhelmed with fright. We start to calculate the cost. We think there's absolutely no way that we can't do it. And he's saying, will you trust me on this? Will you trust me in these relationships? Will you trust me with these prodigal kids? Will you trust me with this marriage that's, you know, it's in a, you know, protracted winter season? Will you trust me with your finances and trust me with your health? And yet we don't want to do that. And so with that in mind, here's how I want to kind of close off our time here. I want to take these two types of people that are evident at this, at this event. You have the scarcity thinkers, think the, the, the uh, disciples, scarcity thinkers. They're thinking you have to go, we have to actually do this physically. We have to go out and make a lot of money and buy these people all this stuff. And, and uh, there's no way that we could possibly feed them. And then there's this abundant thinker, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a famous verse. We all, if you grew up in church, you learned this in John 10, 2. John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. Now, if you read the beginning of that verse, it says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. The thief comes. Now, now listen, I, I have been going to church since I was a little kid, and I have heard people talk about the thief in John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And they consistently say that the thief is Satan, the evil one, the prince of darkness. But I want to challenge you to read that passage again and read the context and read before it because it isn't Satan. Satan isn't mentioned there. If you read up to it starting in chapter 8 and come all the way up through chapter 10, Jesus is talking about people who say they believe in him but they broker in information, they broker in theological uh, uh, checklists, and, and they broker in a bunch of, uh, of, of uh, uh, religious uh, behavior. They're called Pharisees, but they're joy stealers. They're dream killers. And, and, and Jesus was contending with these Pharisees that were constantly... Uh, uh, taking him out and, and, and punching him down for, for the things that he believed. Because see, Jesus came to give us abundant life. Jesus was about freedom in our hearts, in our souls. And they couldn't get this. These, these Pharisees should have known better because they had the Bible, they had God's story, but they were not seeing it. They were looking at it through their own eyes. And so Jesus stood up against them all the time. And by the way, Jesus was very consistent in his de dealing with the Pharisees. He all, I, 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 I looked at a pattern. He always did three things when it came to Pharisees. 
He always stood up to them, meaning he didn't let them intimidate him. And then he exposed the folly of their thinking. And then he ignored them and did what he was going to do. And listen, that is the standard, standard I want to take towards Pharisees that come into my life, that want to steal my, my joy and put me in straitjackets that aren't about the Bible. And that's what you should do too. The problem is when we become those Pharisees, because those Pharisees were the exact people he was talking about that were stealing everybody's joy. They were the ones that were stealing the abundant life. They were, they were the ones that were the contrary to abundant thinking. And so with that in mind, let's contrast these two types of thinkers when it comes to abundant thinking and scarcity thinking. Okay, abundant thinkers. Let's, let's kinda, I'm just going to take a few little generic areas of life and see how they filter them. For instance, how do, how do they view life in general? How do they view life in general? Well, scarcity thinkers start with a presupposition that life is a finite pie, that everything is fixed, and, 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 that everything, there's a, there, there's a fixed quantity to everything in life. For instance, they believe that resources are limited, ideas are limited, opportunities are limited, the capacity to love in a relationship is limited. And by the way, this can affect them in every way of their life. Not only can this throw a wet blanket over their marriage and their relationship with their kids, it can, it can affect their health. When you think everything is fixed and, and you look at it through those eyes, it can bring you down. It could kill you. There's people who have died because of their negative attitude and their, ability, their inability to trust God for something bigger. Now, you have abundant thinkers come along. How do they view life? Abundant thinkers believe that there's plenty for everyone. There's plenty for everyone. That this isn't a fixed amount. There's plenty for everyone. That resources are unlimited. Ideas are unlimited. Opportunities are unlimited. Love is unlimited. They don't quantify through human eyes. They look at God's calling and they believe that there's no stopping what we can and cannot do through God's power, especially following through what he's called us to do. I was, uh, uh, we had a wonderful man in our church for many, many decades. He was a wonderful man, John W. Peterson. Many of you remember John, uh, one of the great uh, songwriters of the 20th century. And uh, he was a um, left-handed golfer, and so am I. And so we, he and I often paired up out there in, in the foursomes. And I always used to, like, when I was playing against him, I, I used to love to hum Gaither uh, medleys when he was putting. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, but I, I remember one time with him, I had something, one of those questions that was always kind of, I wondered about, and I thought, if anybody would know the answer, he would know. I said, John, look, let, let me see if I get this right. In a musical scale, there's eight notes plus their sharps and flats in a complete scale. Now, we've been writing, uh, the human race has been writing music for, you know, 6,000 years, original music. And those classical guys have been very greedy with the notes. They put a lot of them into each measure. Uh, John, when will we get to the point where we exhaust the melodic options on those eight notes, plus their sharps and flats? And here's what he said. Tim, the melodic options on those eight notes, plus their sharps and flats, are, keyword, infinite. Infinite. He said, we can write original music for another billion years and not 
exhausts the options on those eight notes plus their sharps and flats. So when we think so human inside a, a context of faith and we limit the power of God in our lives just because we think, how in the world could you possibly do that? How could it happen? He's, God, God says, are you kidding me? You'll, you'll, never, you'll never exhaust the options on music. How about sunsets? Well, you, you know, sunsets are, are so beautiful, especially here in the Valley of the Sun because of the air pollution. Because it, it, re, it reflects it and, and it just gives it such a beautiful... Um, um, different hue. Uh, God has never painted two sunsets the same yet since, the, since he, he called light into existence. Now, how many primary colors are there that he's painting those with? Do you, do you know how many? Three. There are three primary colors. So God is painting all of those sunsets with just three colors. He's mixing them together, and he hasn't repeated himself yet. Why in the world would we ever think in such a myopic and small way of what, what God wants to do in us and through us and for us? He hasn't striped two zebras the same. He hasn't printed anybody's fingerprints the same. He's this incredible, abundant God, and we need to trust Him. Okay, we've looked at how they view life. How do they view what they have? Scarcity thinkers have a very hard time sharing. And what they do is they hoard. They hold things in tight hands. They hoard resources and time and ideas and opportunity. What about abundant thinkers? They hold everything they have in an open hand. Now, I don't mean that they're irresponsible stewards of what God has given them. They realize that they have to account for the gifts and the resources and so forth, but they want to use all that they have to bring the best out of others and meet the needs of others as God has called us all to do. And so they hold it in open hands. And so for abundant thinkers, they share. They don't hoard, they share. They share their resources, their time, their ideas, their opportunities. And, and once again, we can fall into a category based on who our focus is on at any given time. And if our focus is like Phillips or Andrews on the 5,000 people who are hungry in this little lunch, then we're going to think, there's just no way. But if our focus is on God, if our focus is on God, then you say, well, whatever he says, let's just go do it. It can be done. Actually, I think the focus of Philip and Andrew wasn't so much on the crowd that was hungry or the kids whose lunch was so small. I think it was really on themselves. And that's how we fall into a scarcity way, way of thinking, friends. We look at ourselves. We think, I can't do this, or this is going to be too hard, or I'm actually going to have to live by faith. I'm actually going to have to blindly go out here and believe that God can do what he said he can do. And I don't want to do that. I want life quantified in front of me. And because it can't be, I'm backing off and doing nothing. And so they become these. We, we can, any of us can become those people that bring the, the worst out of the people up close to us. And we steal the joy and we steal the dreams. I want to challenge you to something. If, if there's any theme of today, I want to challenge you today to become a freedom fighter. A freedom fighter for the abundant life of Jesus Christ. And believe that he is God. Believe that he has done a great work in you. Believe that whatever he calls you to do, you can do in his power. And he gets the credit for it because everybody knows you couldn't have pulled it off as a human being. 
instead of being a joy stealer. I, I, I've heard such sad stories about, um, you know, uh, kids that want to go on a missions trip and their parents just say, oh, there's no way we can raise the money for that. You know, you're not one of the kids that's popular. Nobody knows us. There's just no way. You, you know, just don't even sign up for that. Or they want to go into ministry. Oh, man alive, they don't have... Uh, uh, what, what, kind, what kind of... Uh, of, of a health care, health package they have. Well, his, his name is Jesus. I'm sorry, but we need something a little more quantifiable than that. And what's your 401k like? Well, it's not much, but I get to go to heaven when it's all over. It's kind of fun. And, 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 and they throw that down there. Or, or just our people up close, our friends, our spouse, and we kill their dreams. Shame on us for this. This is the, this is the antithesis of the heart of God. He's an abundant God that wants to give us an abundant life so that we think that way and we act that way. Okay, how about, how about this dimension? How do they view others? How do they view others? Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people even and especially members of their own family, close friends or associates. Let me say that one again. Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people, even and especially members of their own family, close friends and associates. They treat other person's blessings as though something were taken from them. And you see how that would happen if you start out with the idea that life is a fixed pie, that everything's fixed, so if you get a big portion of the pie, there's less for me. And if I start with that mindset, I can't ever be happy for something good that happens to you because that means there's less for me. Once again, where's the focus? Me. You see how that works? It's not on God and his provision. It's not on this person that, that you love. And, and whether they're even members of the family of faith, you have people in your family tree where you know, wonderful things happen to them and all it means is, well, yeah, but it didn't happen to me. You see, this does not reflect the heart of God. I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say, let's say, um, here's a scarcity thinker, and he comes out of his house, and he looks next door, and there in his neighbor's driveway is a brand new glistening Hummer, beautiful Hummer. And he's out, and his neighbor's out there, he says, man, uh, Things must be going well at work, man. You got to make good money. No, no, no. It's not that at all. I didn't. I got the same job, same income. But get this. My grandmother bought me a Hummer. Your grandmother bought you a Hummer. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's figuring, you know, I'm, I'm getting older here. And, I, and, 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 and if I don't have a get rid of this stuff, the government's going to come and take it all. So I, she's just asking all of us kids what we like and what kind of cars we like. I said Hummer. And so she bought me a new Hummer. Get this. She paid the taxes on them too. Paid the tags. She gave you a Hummer? Yeah. Well, you want to come over and see it? No. <laughs> no, come on over and see it. No, no, I'm busy. What? Well, I don't know. I've got to color coordinate my sock drawer. So I, I, I have priorities. <laughs> when his friend, when, when his friend passes him in the morning and he beeps the horn, he says, oh, I hate that car. You see, he has swallowed, the scarcity thinker has swallowed that poison pill called comparison. And if you swallow it, you will always lose. It's toxic. It ruins you. And he can't stand it. He tells his wife, you won't believe it. His, his, mother, his grandmother bought him a, a Hummer and paid the taxes on it. 
man, I hate that car. And then he comes home one day, and he looks in his neighbors, looking at the side, what happened? Somebody nicked my car. <sighs> Starting to look like my piece of junk now. By the way, is this pathetic, what I'm outlining here? It's pathetic, but I want to tell you something. Any one of us can slip over that thin line and think this way. This is the, and when we do, it, it, it is the antithesis of God's heart. Okay, let's say there's an abundant thinker. Say, and he comes out. And, here's, and here, let, let me kind of give you the background on abundant thinkers. Abundant thinkers love it when good things happen to the people they love. Why? Because they recognize the intrinsic value of each individual and do everything they can to bring the best out of them. So he comes out of his house, and his neighbors got this new Hummer. He says, what's the deal? You're doing well at work. No, 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 same job, but my grandmother bought me the Hummer. Your grandmother? You're kidding me. Yeah, she's getting old. She wanted to give out her money, and she bought you a new Hummer? Yeah, get this. She paid the tax on it. Even better. That's unbelievable. He says, you want to you see it? Yeah. He says, you want to drive it? You'll let me drive it? Un wait a minute, wait a minute, i got to get my wife. This is a Kodak moment if there was ever any good. You will, honey, you won't believe it. He got a brand new Hummer. His grandma paid for it. And paid the, get the, don't, no, no, this is beyond camera. Get the video. We've got to get this. This is so cool. And you go over there and get a picture of us. And let's go all around. And you go for a ride. And then he sees him in the morning passing, you know, or in the evening. And he'd be saying, oh, I love that car. And then he sees him in the evening. And he's looking at it. What's happened? Somebody nicked my thing. Oh, no. Wait a minute. I've got some compound in the garage here. Let me come out. I, I think we can work it out. I think we can work that out of there. Do you see the difference here? And this is very important. You need to get this one. It's like the neighbor's grandmother gave the abundant thinker the car. He is so excited for the good that happened to his neighbor, and, and he's enjoying it so much, it's as though it happened to him, and that's exactly what happens when we have the abundant heart of God. That is not what happens when we have that pharisaical mindset that we distill everything down to a checklist, and we look down our nose at, at all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we put them on a performance basis. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen when we do it to our spouse, or our kids, or our friends, or our pastor, and so we want to think abundantly, and God wants to set us free to be that way because He has set us free from our sin, from our shame, from our guilt, to live abundant lives. One last thing. How do they view adversity? How do they view adversity? Well, scarcity thinkers take adversity personally, and they punish the people up close to them when they have to go through it. How do they punish them? Well, they whine, they complain, they nag. Someone said, nagging is like being nibbled to death by a duck. <laughs> you, you say, why don't you, just, you know, why don't you just grow teeth and finish me off? And I'm sick of this ni -ni 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 stuff, <laughs> driving me nuts. And get this, they don't dream and they don't give the people up close to them permission to dream. What about abundant thinkers? Well, abundant thinkers feel the pain and the frustration and the adversity of, uh, uh, of difficulty, but they never use it as an excuse for not going, doing everything they can to move beyond it. Like the guys in the boat in the middle of the contrary winds. They fall forward. That's an old football term. Our coach said, this game isn't that complicated. Uh, here's the deal. We hand you the ball, you fall forward. 
Just try and get a couple of yards every time. You keep falling forward, you'll fall across the end zone. We'll get some numbers up in the clock. Just keep falling forward. But the key word here is fall. They're going to get you. They're going to hit you. They're going to rip your head off when they do that. Just make sure you're a few yards further ahead. Life isn't going to be easy for us, but God says it can be abundant. Just keep falling forward in His power. And we have to know how to play hurt. And, and it's a lot easier to play hurt when we play for the coach and not for the crowd. We're playing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing stands out of my mind uh, as far as an example of this as, as Joseph's, you know, Jacob's son Joseph. In, in, in the book of Genesis, here's this, here's this boy, one of 12 brothers, and he has these dreams. And he dreams that brothers bow down to him, and then another dream that his brothers and his parents bow down to him. And that doesn't go over well at dinner. And then his father gives him this kind of Michael Jackson outfit, this coat of many colors, and, 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 and as his favorite, and that ticks off the brothers. And so he, his father sends him out to check on the brothers. They're, they're in a, uh, far away with the, the sheep, and they see, it says they see him at a distance. They see him at a distance. They didn't have binoculars back then. So how did they know it was Joseph? The glove. And he's... <laughs> moonwalking across the thing. And they say, there goes that dreamer. There's that dreamer. They say, man, I hate him. Yeah, we all hate him. One of the brothers says, let's kill him. We can't kill him. He's our brother. Let's sell him. And so they sell him to these Midianite traders that are heading to Egypt. And so he's sold away into slavery. And he gets down there, and he's bought by this guy named Potiphar, who has this lonely, unfulfilled wife. And she makes a move on him, and he spurns her. He says, are you nuts? I wouldn't do this against Potiphar. I wouldn't do this against God. But she insists, and finally when she, she can't get him to cooperate, she frames him. She, she grabs his outer garments, and as he flees from her, and then she accuses him of a sexual assault. It, it, it's, it's a false accusation. He ends up in jail. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Joseph, this is when I would check in with God with my final prayer of my life. And it would be something like, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks a whole lot. I didn't ask for those dreams. You gave me those. I didn't ask for that stupid Michael Jackson outfit, that, that stupid outfit. That, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask for these jealous brothers. I didn't ask to be sold into slavery. I got down here. I became the most responsible, reliable servant he had. I didn't ask for his lonely, unfulfilled wife. I did what you told me to do, and I end up in jail. Thanks a lot. That's how I would have been inclined as a scarcity-thinking person to do. But he's an abundant-thinking follower of God. And his th prayer went something like this. Now, let me see if I get this straight. You're moving my ministry from Potiphar's house to the jail. <laughs> and he became the most responsible, reliable prisoner they had. They almost made him the warden, for crying out loud. And that set him up to be in a position to, through God's power, interpret the dreams of the guys that brought him into Pharaoh's court, which helped him be in a position to really oversee the salvation, uh, the physical salvation of Egypt from famine, and as well as it saved his family from, uh, from famine and idolatry. Because Egypt didn't allow the Hebrews to worship their gods. They brought them down there to isolate them. You see, God wants to do a great thing through us. He wants to go do a great thing in us and, 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 and for us and with us. And it starts with us letting him fill us with that abundant life. Let me close with this. And then we're going to do something very fun that shows us, gives us a chance to be abundant 
thinkers right now before we leave. And that is this. There's there, a the story goes that there were, I, I think so much of this is right here between our, our, our ears. There's a story of these two, two little boys. One was always pessimistic. The other was always optimistic. And they didn't know how, why they were wired the way they were. So they took the pessimistic kid and they did an experiment. They put him in a little room with, with a bunch of things that kids could like. There was a jumping horse and there were some, some, uh, some, some uh, puzzles and some candy. And they left them there. He's sitting there. He said, we're going to check on you in a while. And then they took the, 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 the uh, uh, optimistic kid and they put him in a room that was waist deep in horse manure. Said, we'll come back and check on you. They waited. They came back to the pessimistic kid. He's sitting right where they left and hadn't touched a thing. I said, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you play with the jumping horse? I thought I'd fall off and break my arm. <laughs> well, what about the puzzle? They look too complicated. What about the candy? Every kid loves it. I thought I'd get sick and just, you know, get sick. They left them. They came down to the optimistic kid. There's manure all over the walls, all over the ceiling, all over the kid. He's throwing a big chunk of it as they open the door. I said, what are you doing? So with all this stuff in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and I'm going to find him. I want to tell you, God has called us to do extraordinary things in His power, and we need to do it. And we have a chance to do something right now. You know, uh, the first Sunday of the month, we, we, we focus in on what He did for us in the cross through communion. They have decided, and we usually took up an elders' fund, but now we're doing, it on the, we're doing the elders' fund on the third Sunday of the month. And just like Joseph was in this abundant thinking follower of God that was raised up in a time of abject famine to come to the aid of the Egyptians, I think we have a lot of great need before us, and we can come to their aid now. And I'm going to ask the, the ushers to come down here, and we're going to take up a free will offering from you that goes into the elders' fund, helps the poor, the, the, the disenfranchised, the, the, all the people that are really under abject strain right now. If you can come forward, let's pray for this, and then we'll sing a song, and I'll come up and send you on your way. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these folks. Thank you for the abundant wife you've given us, the abundant work you want to do in us and through us. And now, Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we respond to this opportunity to bless others through the way you've blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.